From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the podcast today, part two of our conversation in person here at the Yale Broadcast Center with screenwriter Ed Solomon. Ed is the hugely talented screenwriter behind Men in Black, Now You See Me, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, HBO's Mosaic, and so many others. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back, listen to it. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Uh, but now, let's get into part two. Here it is. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Literally, what am I going to do? Should I get another job? Should I try to go to grad school? We wrote the Bill and Ted script. You're, you decided <laughs> instead to do the very practical thing of writing a buddy a spec comedy. Script. <laughs> right, writing a spec script about two guys who go into a phone booth and travel through time. Nice move. Yes. Well, it was a van at the time, but still, yeah. Um, uh, you know, my entire life has been, oh, I could do the practical thing or I could gamble on myself. And I think I have gambled on myself. I haven't always won, but I'm actually, I just spent last year writing a 600-page spec script, so... Um, it's insane. It is insane. It, it's a spectrum in a genre that hasn't even proven itself yet. <laughs> not even a, a form, like they're not even a genre. Um, a, a, well, anyway, um, wrote the Bill and Ted script and my agents hated it and wouldn't send it out. Wow. And then I, I went to this meeting with them. I called them all together to have this rally where I was going to convince them to get, you know, get on my side and get behind it. And they ended up just firing me. Wow. <laughs> so... No script, you know, no agent, have the script. Um, and nothing to do with the script. And yeah. nothing to do. But there was an agent that I had met who was a young agent when I got the Laverne and Shirley job two years earlier. And we had stayed in touch, just stayed friendly. I didn't go with him because I went with the big fancy agent that had given a big talk at UCLA. I didn't go to the talk because I wasn't allowed in it because I wasn't a film major. But my friend said, oh, there's this agent who's like really, really great. Um, and he's really impressive and he was a very powerful agent at the time and um, I signed with him just because it it felt like the bigger move yeah and there's something about you know you walk around with a little bit more confidence when you're at one of the bigger agencies it's a little yeah. bit of an endorsement um, you know I went through the same thing yeah but it's not always, It's uh, in my experience anyway, it's much more about the agent than the agency. 100%. It's more about one person who actually believes in right. you. And they didn't necessarily believe in me. Um, but this other young guy who was just starting out, I was like, hey, David, um, yeah, I don't really have an agent anymore. Are you still interested in, would you be interested in reading a script? He said, I'd love to. He loved Bill and Ted. And then he went over to CAA and suddenly he was like, I don't know if I can commit to signing you, but let's see what happens. And then within a couple of weeks, the script caught a hold. Mm. And so then he signed us and we ended up setting up Bill and Ted and getting, you know, we got five grand for it and um, as an option and but just put us on the map and the studio map. And then we got a, a um, 
a job to write a movie and then, you know, it was like, then, oh, my God. So yeah, from there. Yeah. Um, but Bill and Ted, I mean, you know, I, I love this movie. <laughs> I watched Thank it you. so many times growing up. I appreciate up. it. Yeah. I've seen it three times in my which life. Is, which blows my mind. So you saw the premiere. I, I saw a screening. Like uh, when they, we uh-huh. did it, they did a screening of it. And then I went to the premiere. And then you forgot about it for 30 years. Well, then I didn't go. And then to, then I didn't watch it again. And then I watched it about four years ago when the Blu-ray, they did a Blu-ray and I had to watch both to do DVD commentary. Right. So we just watched it while, com- while doing commentary. Wow. Um, they also, I mean, it's had other lives. Obviously, it had a sequel. Uh, there was a cartoon spinoff. That I Which I had nothing I to do with. Right. But, oh, man. Uh, we did the sequel. We didn't do the cartoon or the, t- there was a TV show too that right. we had, that they wouldn't even let us write. We had right. nothing to do with. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to play a clip from the oh, movie okay, for sure. people who haven't seen it. Um, so I'm going to show this to you and everybody okay. else can listen to it. Um, this is, you know, near the end of the movie, um, you know. Don't worry about spoilers if you haven't seen the movie or you haven't seen it in a long time. But basically, this is Bill and Ted um, who are traveling through time and picking up famous historical figures to help them with the history paper that they're writing and bringing them back to the present day. And uh, through a funny series of events, all these historical figures have landed themselves in jail. Yeah, so I have not seen this. I've seen this once since it opened. You know, I saw it twice when it opened and then once. My memory, it'll be interesting to see, but my memory of it is for people that are just listening to it, they should know uh, they're outside the police station when it starts. Um, and then they're going into a police station and they're basically um, making their way through the station um, to get the historical figures out of right, jail. Right, and Ted's dad works uh, in the station. And that's so right, they've got to find a way officer. to get around to him. Right. right, that's right. Yeah. And so here's Bill and Ted trying to figure out how to bust them out of jail. Go, Dad. Our historical figures are all locked up. My dad won't let them out. Can we get your dad's keys? Could steal them, but he lost them two days ago. Only we could go back in time to when he had them and steal them then. Well, why can't we? Because we don't got time. We could do it after the report. Ted, good thinking, dude. After the report, we'll time travel back to two days ago, steal your dad's keys, and leave them here. Where? I don't know. How about behind that sign? That way, when we get here now, they'll be waiting for us. See? Whoa, yeah! So after the report, we can't forget to do this, otherwise it won't happen. But it did happen. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. Exactly, Ted. Come on. Mom? Yes? Can you please bring the car around back? Sure. Come on, Ted. We've got some historical figures to rescue. Over now. How are you going to get past my dad? You got a tape recorder at home. Yeah? Okay. Remember to get the tape recorder. Yeah? Set a timer on it for, uh, 2.13. Got it? Got it. What am I going to say on it? Dad! Hey, Dad! It's you, dude. 
Ted? I'm over here. on the report. Sincerely, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. That was nice of us. P.S. Duck. Excellent work, dude. Way to go. Time is of the essence. This man asked that you all work together so that we can go down to the car. Very quiet now. Quiet. Against the wall, buddy. Single file. Hurry up, Billy. How do we get out of here? Single file. Over here, Dad. Down here. Way to go, dude. Stalled him. What else do I say? And now, opening for Iron Maiden, Wild Stallion! Come on, Bill, put the back in. Ted, what in the hell do you think you're doing? Trash can. Remember the trash can. Trash can? What are you talking about? Yeah, get this thing off me, Ted. Sorry, Dad, but we've got to go past our history report. Oh, by the way, I found your keys. Okay, uh, that was awesome. That's it's. It was really fun to watch that you watch that. Oh my god, <laughs> what did I look like? Because it was very odd to watch. Why I have is to it? say, well, I forgot how what well, very dated it is, but also how um, it's slow. You know, it's it's interesting. It's conceptual, which is why I like it. I like that scene because it's time travel, but there's no science fiction in it other than thought. It's thought experiment, time travel. It's at, they have this time traveling phone booth. So they say, we need the key. Oh, throughout the movie, that's right. Ted's dad's looking for his keys. He can't find the keys. And he's always blaming Ted for having taken them. And Ted's like, dad, I don't know what to do with, I don't know. I had nothing to do with it. Right. And um, I like, <laughs> I've always liked this scene in concept because <laughs> it's just magical thinking is all it right. is. It's after the report, we'll go back in time. And we'll plant the things that we need so that they'll be here. Oh, whoa, look, here's the thing. So we must have done it. We must have done it. And I remember when we came up with that because we were stuck because we needed to break them out of the jail. And even them being in jail and them at the mall and all of that stuff was studio notes getting us to put the do more fish out of water stuff, mm -hmm. which Chris and I were always avoiding. We always liked Bill and Ted, but we didn't really like like historical figures at the mall and that kind of thing. It just seemed like easy jokes and it wasn't to our taste. Um, but we were stuck and we were on a real deadline. We had to figure out as writers, how do we get them out of this jail? And we kept like trying to come up with clever breakout scenes, action scenes. Also, there was almost, this is a very low budget movie. So it's like, how can we do it in a way that isn't expensive 
but that makes us laugh. And then we came up with this idea for the magical thinking of it. And I was like, oh, cool. And we had a, so much more. We had a whole series of, of <laughs> obstacles that they overcame with magical thinking right. as they moved through the police station. And as happened many times on this movie, we were asked to simplify it. It's always a mistake to dumb something down because you're trying to make more people understand it. It's never a good idea. You never have to talk down to an audience, ever. And audiences are actually okay if they don't understand everything. Kids will laugh at stuff that adults won't laugh at. Adults will see things in some movies that kids won't laugh at. It's fine. The best kids' movies have jokes that only adults get. People are understand if something's a little bit above their head that that's actually okay. It's much better, but I, but especially at that time, there was just a lot of, you know, make it more understandable, right. make it, you know, right. never a good And idea. that's like the classic note you get from a broadcast network versus a cable network when you're doing TV. The broadcast network is always clarify. Right. And the cable network is, no, obfuscate. Obfuscate, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so how long after Bill and Ted's Oxen Adventure until Men in Black? So Bill and Ted came out in 89. The sequel came out in 90 or 91, and uh, maybe 91. 93, I was approached about writing Men in Black. Walter Parks, the producer, said, here's a little thing we think you can knock out in six weeks, four years later. Um, <laughs> and uh, But you took the job back then. Well... I wasn't interested initially in it. I, I read the comic book, which has some really great ideas, and Lowell Cunningham's a, a great guy and, and imaginative. It was like three issues. I think it was like, you know, a very tiny little thing, and, um, but it was very dark and dramatic, and um, I was writing a polite note to the producer as to why I felt like it wasn't right for me and what I thought it, it should be if, if I was going to do it, but... I don't think they'd want to do this because it's not what the underlying material is. Um, it'd be, you know, it needs to be a comedy, and, and right. I think it needs to be also about sort of aliens. And and to me, I was really interested in this idea that that anywhere you look, you don't see it, but they know what's happening right behind where you can't see, and that this world exists simultaneous to our world. And... Um, you know, I, I went for a whole different tone. I was saying, that's what I feel like it should be. And I remember giving him the note and him going, well, that's, well, let's do that. And I was like, oh, okay. Did he have any, did he have Will Smith or Tom Lee Jones attached to no, the comic no, book? No, no one was attached. Um, I just, uh, I spent a long time breaking the story with Walter. Um, sometimes I'd, you know, go on my own, come back, pitch to Walter. Or sometimes he and I pitched together. Were you doing this for free or was this, they have a studio? It was a Sony. It was Columbia Pictures. Um, uh, and by the time, I went in and pitched pretty early. Um, before Walter and I had really done any real story work, I had um, come up with like two-thirds of a story and pitched it to Barry Josephson, who was the executive at the time. Um, and then at the right where the third act was about to start, I said, and you'll have to find to read it to find out what happened. <laughs> wow. And he move. loved that we did that. It was a bold move, but there was really no alternative because I didn't have a third act at all. <laughs> at all. And he even said in that meeting, he goes, I don't want to put any pressure on you. But, and he goes out of the room and he comes back with a sweatshirt that says, in 1994, they arrived, the men in black. 1994, 
This was 93, I guess, when we pitched it. Wow. The movie came out in 97. It took, yeah, you know, don't a lot make longer. a sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> I pitched to Barry once and he took a phone call in the middle of it. Oh, really? <laughs> that was a bummer. It was tough. <laughs> I, did a, I had a, a meeting once with a producer who was getting a massage during the entire <laughs> meeting with his, literally his face down wow. on a massage table talking to me through the cradle. Wow. That's yeah. so demeaning. <laughs> I know. I, and by the way, I mean, that is that would never happen now. That would never happen that, now. Because of sexual also, I mean, of course. The guy was basically naked with right. just a towel on him, and there was a massage therapist in the room. Right. It was a trailer, actually. He was on set, and I had this meeting with him, and he talked. Uh, who? That is insane. Is, that's completely insane. Yeah. Although, I don't know. I pitched to a guy uh, two weeks ago. I pitched a show. He was the head of the network. I swear to God, he was sleeping with his eyes open. Oh, God. I mean, you could you could hear the sounds. You could hear the sleeping sounds oh, coming so out of sorry. it. I'm so sorry. And within two minutes, you, you we felt that, and we still had to go through it the next the 18 minutes thing. of the pitch. Oh, oh it's a bad that. feeling. That is horrible. And I've had situations like that, too, where you – where, and what's what's messed up about that is – when you are pitching, you are so I am so attuned to what's going on in their body. Right, subtle things can throw me completely off. You know, I I I was um, uh, terrible at pitching, but actually somebody really helped me. Gary Ross, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I called you right before I went out to do these pitches. Oh, and we you, talked about that. Yeah, you had some great advice for me. So. Yeah, I want you to talk about oh, that. Oh, should I? Okay, cool. Please. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So Gary, so what happened was Gary and I were working on a movie together. Right. Gary was going to direct it. And Gary Ross directed Dave and uh, Seabiscuit and a lot of great Pleasantville, uh-huh. um, Mocking, uh, yeah, you know. Um, Hunger Games. Hunger Games, the mm-hmm. first one. Um, and he was going to direct a script that I wrote for Tobey Maguire called Tokyo Sucker Punch, which never got made. But Gary was attached to direct, and we went to meetings together. And... I noticed that when I talked about it, it seemed very convoluted and like the the thrust was a little unclear. And I even when I got the job, I talked. It was the worst pitch of all time when I when I actually got hired. But the guy said, um, "Well, I'm I I've read your work, and I trust that you." <laughs> I'm going to assume you're better. On better, the page yeah, basically than, the than yeah. that, and um and hired me thankfully. Yeah. Um. So, but what I had noticed was when I talk about it, it's, it just doesn't feel that good. But when Gary talks about it, it seems like the most amazing movie of all time. So I I said, I gotta, I gotta talk to you. I gotta, I took him out to lunch. I said, what is it that you do? Like that, how come when you talk about this movie, it seems great. And when I talk about it, it seems really lame. And he said to me, you can never be an expert on what someone else in the room wants. But you are the world's foremost authority on your own point of view. And as long as you keep that in mind, you can sail through anything. Hmm. As long as you focus on what you love about it, it's unassailable. I love that. So that you often, I mean, we do this. We go into a room and we're thinking, what do they need? What do they want? What am I conveying myself as? What are they seeing in me? What do, you know, am I hitting the targets that they feel they need to have hit? It's a losing game. Right. It's a losing gamble. But if you focus on what you love, 
it's almost like it provides its own energy right. and takes you right through the meeting right. because it's true, it's real, and they feel it. They right. can sense passion that. Passion is contagious. Yeah. yeah. And I and let's talk about passion because I want to talk about that yeah. in a second. But like what is infectious is that you have energy and momentum that they can hitch their wagon to as opposed to what we often think going into a room, which is that they are the gatekeepers and they know what they want. And as long as we get through the gate, we're going to be good. What they really want is not for you to tick off a series of boxes that they need ticked off. What they actually want is for you to tell them what the boxes are going to be and then tick them off as well. Right. They're under a lot of pressure themselves. They're getting, they're getting squeezed by their bosses. They're, they have very little time. They're in charge of way too many things. And so what they're looking for is someone who has the energy and use the word passion, but I want to qualify mm-hmm. that word in a minute, the, who has a take, a vision, and, and, lo- and, and enough of a sense of what it is that they can relax and let you take it from right, there. Right. Passion. Yeah. People, I think passion is misused. I actually think passion, I think people get the wrong advice about passion. People are always saying you need to be passionate about right. something because it's going to take so long. You need to be passionate. Right. I don't buy it. I think it puts too much pressure on you. I don't think that is even necessary to make something amazing. I would substitute that for interest, <laughs> meaning I don't think you don't have to be you don't have to be in love with it at all times. You have to be interested. And being interested is what for me kind of pulls me into the story. I'm interested in this. Interesting. That's interesting. Oh what how would how would she react if she did this? Right. Oh that's interesting. What does that tell me? I'm curious about that. Like right. like to me that's enough. And in fact, I don't trust passion, to be honest. Why? It's like infatuation. It goes away. It's romantic. It goes away. And then when it's not there, we feel like something's wrong. You can build a story that's really meaningful, and you actually develop something deeper than passion. You can actually develop a kind of legitimate love for it, an actual (laughs) intimacy with it, Uh and deep knowledge of it. that I think is more meaningful than passion. And and you you care about it and you you want to fight for it and you want to see it through and you work really hard. It's the same with inspiration. Inspiration to me is complete bullshit. Right. I think inspiration is what most people use as an excuse to not actually write. <laughs> right. Chuck Close, I think, has that great line that um, amateurs wait for inspiration, the rest of us get up and go to work. Oh, that's, I've not heard it, but that makes so much sense. I remember Philip Pullman who wrote The Golden Compass. I uh-huh. love Philip Pullman. He, he, a quote that I'm going to badly, badly <laughs> paraphrase, but it was some version of the same thing. It, yeah. was, it was, my job is not to write when inspired. My job is to come up with good stuff even when I'm not inspired. Right. Inspiration is another false flag. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's bright and shiny and it's exciting. And, you know, and there is such a thing as, in, as being inspired by something. And, um, you can have epiphanies, but we often think that big ideas have to come with a loud noise and a bright light. And sometimes a big idea comes very, it's a very subtle thing. It's right. Sometimes it's just a tiny little 
blip on the mental landscape that you go, oh, there you go. There it is. That's the idea. Do you remember what it was about Men in Black that brought your interest in, that you were curious about and wanted to proceed with? When I came up with the idea that they communicate through the tabloids, that that the that what you read in the t- in the tabloids is true is actually true, mm-hmm. like those cr- those like weird right. stories of National you know, Enquirer. Headlines. Yeah, that that's how. When I realized that, I was like, "That's it. That there now I know what the tone is." And what I understood in that hmm. moment was the mood. That's so cool. Because mood, especially with a comedy, I think, and I don't ever hear anyone talk about this, and maybe it's because it's only me that thinks it, but. I think mood is key with comedy. And depending on the type of comedy it is, most of the time the characters carry the mood. Sometimes the filmmaking itself carries the mood. But I had this argument with Tommy Lee Jones uh, early in the process. I think my first meeting with him, he's like, it's either drama or comedy, make up your mind. And I was like, it's not good enough science fiction to be drama. The ideas need the mood that we create with the kind of kind of crooked hmm. uh, sense bent sense of humor uh, that the that that will create the playground that we can all run around in um but i once i got the mood for for men in black i knew i could write it like i didn't know what the story was but i knew i could write it and to me that's um another thing that i think people i think people think writing is an intellectual process that one does with one's brain and i believe we do it with our body mm. and are the brain kind of transcribes, the brain follows along. I mean, obviously, you know, you're thinking, but we mistake thinking. We, we, we think thinking is kind of cogitating or, 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 or um, you know, connecting ideas and making decisions. Right. It's, it, but it's, it's deeper. Right. You know, it's mulling and it's, feeling it's something. so much more about feeling than about thinking 100 percent. Right? yeah we had billy ray on the podcast so i know you know um, yeah and he talked a lot about that that you know once you get past the point of making people think and actually make them feel which i think you need to be doing in order to you know um, pull those emotions out that's when you've got something i agree completely and, and billy is one of the smartest guys i've ever met and he's such a great writer and a great director mm-hmm. um and a great guy you know i really like him he thinks He's got a, a real interesting and crisp way of thinking, but he's right about making people feel. But for me as a writer, I also have to feel. And once right. I feel something, I can write it. Even if I don't know what it is, right. I know I can write it. And it's, it's with a character. It's just it's about feeling them. Okay, I got it. Right. A scene, a sequence, a big idea. That's the other thing people always think. They think you have to have the whole idea for the movie to write it. You don't. Writing... Well, first of all, writing starts the minute you start thinking about something. Right. But also, you can put it together little pieces at a time. You know, you let, you know some of it, it brings you in, you start to know more, it starts to tell you what it is, right. it starts to shape itself, patterns form, the idea changes. Sure. You know? And uh, do you always write with an outline? Do you always know how the movie's going to end before you begin? Depends on the script. Right. Most of the time, with most movies... It's a pretty good idea to know where it's going to end, or at least where you think it's going to end. Right. It's usually a good idea. I think right. when I've let myself try and discover the ending as I go, I've I've not been as successful. Sure. Um, but every story wants to be outlined or not outlined or cr- or broken down differently, 
And I think we make a mistake thinking that this is our process. Mm -hmm. It worked on the last one, so we should apply it to the next one. Mm -hmm. Every new story, I believe, for me at least, has to be looked at as as a discrete entity that has its own rules. And part of my job is to, while figuring out what the story is, figure out what are the rules for the telling of the story and how does this story itself want to be right. broken down because they're always different. And the more um, dexterous I can be with the story and my relationship to the story and the more I can let it you know, both be come out of me but also inform me as mm-hmm. to what it is trying to be and the more of a dance between me and it that I can do, the the more alive it is. Right. I love that. Um, so I just want to ask you one more question because uh, you and I have to go. We got to oh, yeah, do an right. event uh, <laughs> after this. But, you know, you mentioned Billy Ray um, on the podcast. He actually talked about um, seeking your advice, taking you out for lunch, oh I think. God, and, I remember that. Yeah, getting some help from you. And so I'm curious, you know, with Mosaic, the HBO show that you did with Soderbergh, you talked about um, – you had been doing big studio movies for many, many years before going back to TV here. Um, Did you seek out your favorite TV showrunners or people you were connected to? How did you know what you were doing when you went back to TV after all these years? Well, I had Steven, you know, who was an incredible mentor and just as a smart guy and a great guy to work with and just trusting and he was helpful on the writing part. Oh, he was amazing because I was just coming off of a movie where every scene I wrote had to be vetted through probably eight or ten different people. Like, give it to a producer, get notes, read rise, give it to the producer again, it goes to the director. Right. Notes. Back to the producer, to the director, studio. Right. Back. And just, it was painful. The The opposite with Steven. It's out of a 500-page script of Mosaic, we had one 45-minute story meeting where he was like, we're going to cut this. I don't think you need this, more of this, less of that. This part works great. Let's do more of that. You know, it was it was amazing. And no more notes, except for, you know, hey, I think we're running a little long here. We can trim. But, that you know, nothing, um, nothing major. It was more like you do your job. Right. I'll do my job. That's great. I mean, we spent a lot of time breaking the story together. I flew back and forth from LA to New York weekly. Wow. So we had we were definitely on the same page. And so during that process, there was a lot of uh, back and forth and a lot of me. Basically, I would pitch him everything I'd done all week. He would give me his comments. I would go back and keep working. So because we weren't doing a standard television show, there wasn't really a showrunner type person for me to talk to because I was the only writer and we were writing for a form that didn't exist. So right. there was no precedent for us. Um, so you felt confident enough to sort of m- make it up as you go, work with Steven. Yeah. You'd figure it out. Yeah. And he, you know, look, he was, a gr- I mean, beyond a great partner. It was just, I knew I was in good hands. You right. Know? Totally. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been great. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please subscribe. 
You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.